Welcome to Scores and Pours, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Andrew Goddess is our special guest today, and Andrew is really a special guest because we knew each other when I, Emily Reese, was a graduate student in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Andrew was an undergrad. And I kind of was your teacher for a short amount of time, sort of, but I think you... you graded my homework. I think you knew more than I did then. <laughs> I, I still think you were smarter than me probably then. So, and for sure now. So, what did you graduate in, Andrew? Uh, so, my undergraduate degree was organ performance, and my degrees since then have been in music theory, which is what Emily was a graduate student in at University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Why the organ? Why not like? the trombone or, you know, something a little bit more portable, say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's a fun instrument. I mean, and some of this also goes back to, you know, I grew up playing piano um, and I kind of switched to organ when my piano teacher, who taught me, like, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade or thereabouts, she retired. And so I transitioned to organ at that time. I guess I could have kept on playing piano, but um, that's really when I, when I switched. Yeah, I mean, and we're going to talk about organ today because Andrew has such a deep knowledge in that. And uh, Andrew currently teaches in Idaho at a college in Idaho. Tell us about that for a second, if you would. Yeah, I teach at the College of Idaho. It is a liberal arts college just outside of Boise. And I am the music theory professor there. So yes, my undergraduate degree was organ, but I don't play actively that much anymore. Uh, although the, the choir director is like getting me on an organ for some of their concerts every once in a while. So I teach music theory classes. I'm the only music theorist there. Uh, as far as I know, I think I'm the only music theorist in the state of Idaho. Uh, what? There are composers, I believe, at the other institutions. Now, there have been some departures, and I don't keep you know, tabs on exactly who's in all of the other like, universities in, in the state, but yeah. I think that's a true statement, at least as uh, that I'm the only like, actual music theorist, not the only person that teaches music theory. Right. You know what's um, crazy, though? There are more wineries in Idaho <laughs> than there are music theorists, and that's insane <laughs> right there. 65 wineries, I think, at present. depending on the source you consult. I had no idea what to expect moving to Idaho from from Tallahassee, Florida, and was astonished. I mean, they grow all sorts of produce, like you think potatoes, but I mean, there are peaches, plums, apples, pears, cherries, and a lot of of vineyards. So they grow a lot of grapes and make it into wine. Do you know that you live in the lentil capital of the world? I did not know that they grew that many lentils here. I did not either, but it made, I love me some legumes and some garbanzos <laughs> and some lentils. It's like kind of one of my favorite things besides wine. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm doing, and I love whitewater rafting, even though I'm not a whitewater rafter. And so I need to come to Idaho yeah, very soon, it we sounds think like. Scores and Pours road trip to Idaho is, is impending. And the reason we're talking so much about Idaho is because, of course, not only is Andrew from Idaho, but we're going to drink wine from Idaho today. So Jill Mott, sommelier. I mean, yeah, when you were like, I really want to interview my friend Andrew, and he lives in Idaho, and he's this music theorist. I was like, what the hell am I going to do? And I was like, (laughs) I'm sure we could. There are are vineyards planted and wineries in all all 48 states, or in all 48 states. And so I was like, well, I guess we're going to have to find some Idaho wine. And 3,100 sellers was nice enough to ship us some wine, and Andrew was sweet enough to acquire the wine and, and 
kind of guide us in the right direction there. So um, thank you for that. And yeah, let's just jump right in. Let's just music, right? Like organ. I'm just, I'm, I'm perplexed. Well, okay. I listened to it this, like for the last week, right? I've been listening to a lot of organ music. I'm sure my neighbors are like, what the hell is going on in Jill's apartment? Yeah. And all the while, every time I listen to it, whether I'm in the shower, in the car, cooking, I'm like, I'm sure people are thinking I'm having a religious ceremony in my house, right? Yeah. In my and so I'm wondering <laughs> why it, it always reminds people of church, right? Yeah. Tell us more. She's, she's been very into this whole idea for weeks. So it's an interesting history. I mean, the organ is probably one of the oldest instruments that we know about. I mean, yes, there's been flutes and drums around for uh, forever, um, but there are designs for early organs really draw, uh, run off of hydraulic water pressure going back to Egypt. Uh, so it's been around for a long time, not in the fashion that we currently understand. It was probably just, you know, loud noise going through a pipe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the organ as we knew it, um, during the Dark Ages, kind of disappeared from Europe, was reintroduced uh, through the Byzantines to the uh, Franks. Uh, and I'm hoping I'm getting all my history right. There's a reason why I'm a theorist and not a musicologist. So <laughs> if, if we get any angry DMs after this, I'm sorry. Uh, so blame got, it on the Idaho wine. Just yeah. blame it on the wine, Andrew. <laughs> Even though we haven't started drinking yet, I'm sure we can splice it in there. So. <laughs> But really got reintroduced there, and it's a complex mechanical contraption. And so got introduced into the church at a time when instrumental music was really not allowed, right? In in churches, it was all uh, supposed to be vocal music, so sung music. Instruments not allowed, except the organ did make its way in. And we think it's because there is this association of cosmic harmony with the organ, like it's very neoplatonic thinking that you can see the ratios of, you know, an octave one to two in the lengths of the pipes. Oh. And we see some of those like sacred geometry work its way into church design. So they saw this as like a manifestation of heaven almost, right? Like the heavenly harmony in a physical object. And mm-hmm. this was what was providing sound. And there's also a little bit of connection with you've got lots of different parts all contributing to one kind of unified sound at the end. So it's also seen as kind of a you know, metaphorical relationship to like the body of Christ, right? Lots of people in a church in single, single goal. So I think those are the two contributing factors for why it really became associated with the Christian church. Fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, eventually they started putting organs in performance halls and, and the like, and it did make its way out of the church. But for some reason that, um, well, I mean, not for some reason, but that association still is so strong with the church. Uh, so, yeah. And hopefully we'll see how some of that plays out in some of the different items that I've selected to listen to, just because the practices, right, changed so much from the different regions that it uh, the organs themselves are very different instruments from Italy to France to Germany and so on. Right, and that's because they weren't portable. I mean, these are giant, huge mechanical contraptions, and, and so they just developed differently in these geographic areas. Would you say most of that development kind of happened late Renaissance, early Baroque, when they were starting to build them in, in more places, or, or what? So I would probably agree with you. This is what I'm going to say. I'm definitely not a musicologist. Okay. Uh, some, of the difficulty, <laughs> some of the difficulty is... Uh, we don't really have many surviving instruments, if any, from from pre-Renaissance. And even if we okay. do, a lot of the instruments really get, they were changed. 
So maybe you had an organ that was built in the 1500s. As time would go on, they would, you know, redo the organ, add on to it, cut the pipes so that there would be different tunings. So it's fairly rare that you have instruments that are truly like authentic products of sure. um, like pre-Baroque era. That makes sense. Well, should we drink some wine and then, or well, we were going to listen to some music right off the bat and we didn't even do that. Well, I wanted, I wanted to say, first of all, you were mentioning all these countries, Italy, Germany, which I can't wait to get there. Emily and I have been looking at our downloads over the past, you know, month. Uh, we always like to see where people tune in from, which brings me, it makes me think about our patrons mm -hmm. and where all of our patrons are from, from all over the world, all actually. All over the world, yeah. And we want to thank all of you for contributing, for becoming a patron on patreon.com slash scores and pours because we could not do this without you. And we do, on that patron page, we have different tiers. We make it very easy for you to check us out. Find a tier that works best for you. There's always patron-only content. Mm -hmm. In many cases, there's some free merch that we ship out to you. And then when you're finding yourself chilly, like a day like today where it's like snowing in the middle of March, <laughs> uh, there's like extra, there's like hoodies and stuff like that you can get. So yeah, mm -hmm. thanks to our patrons. We couldn't do it without you. We sure couldn't. You can also find us on Instagram at Scores and Pours. If you have show ideas, comments, we'd love to hear from you there too. Sounds good. So let's listen to some music before. I yeah. mean, let's, so, I mean yeah. Andrew might not be used to drinking at 3.30 in the afternoon like you and I are. So we let's are. listen to some music. Especially on a Monday, it's her favorite thing to do. It's so. true. <laughs> so Andrew sent us a playlist of, obviously, of organ music. And uh, my favorite on the whole thing is the very first track. Because like we said, we have this special connection to the University of Nebraska. And it's so funny that you pointed me, pointed at this out to me because after I looked at her picture, I was like, I totally know her. <laughs> yeah, you were really, you were telling me about this one. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so explain who's playing this very first piece we're gonna hear and why this piece itself is so special. All right, so the performer on this piece is Oshra, and uh, she and her husband Vitas were doctoral students in the organ studio at University of Nebraska when I was there as an undergraduate. So they're from Lithuania. They are both working at uh, the university in Vilnius, and they recorded this at the organ there, which I think is an 18th century organ, but they are now working back in Lithuania. If you want to find out more about them, I know they have a podcast, YouTube channel, The Secrets of Organ Playing, and they're wonderful people. I mean, I have not seen them since uh, since I've been we were students together at Nebraska, but I, so I was excited to see this was one of the uh, performances on on Spotify when I was pulling it, and the piece itself is one of the oldest uh, pieces of organ literature that we have that was written down. Wow. Uh, so the history of music notation and being able to print music notation. It took a little bit longer to figure that out compared to just print. And printing press, you know, was what, mid 1400s, I think, uh, mid 15th century. So this is 1512. Uh, it's a piece called Maria Tsart by Arnold Schlick. It was written in tablature, so it was not actually on a score with, you know, staves, lines, and notation. There were some notes well, but otherwise, it was tablature. Like if you think of guitar tabs, right, mm -hmm. where there's indications of kind of what chord you play. Uh, so that's how it was originally written. Uh, but you will hear, I think, some imitation between the parts, which becomes a you know an important part of Renaissance and Baroque music. So a little back and forth between voices. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yes. let's give it a listen. Mm -hmm. 
I notice, Andrew, there's like this, it's like you can hear the air, you know, you can hear it being pushed. It sounds like it's, how can I say it musically? It sounds like there's some sort of dampening of the notes between, they're not like really coarse changes. Um, is that typical of what this, what they wanted this to sound like? And is this very typical of this style of organ? So I'm going to see if I can interpret what you're saying you're hearing. There's a little space between the notes. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, you will hear air moving. Uh, in some of the recordings, you'll hear it a little bit more clearly than others, just depending on where they had the microphones placed, because there is air moving through the pipes. Like if you were up close to an organ that's playing, you would, you would hear some of that. There is a little space between the notes. So uh, with early organ technique, there's something they called articulated legato. So it's not gonna be really smooth connection from note to note. That's exactly what I'm noticing. Is this like, it just sounds like it's, it's not obviously all one note, right? But it sounds like it's sort of this continuation. Okay, so that's the organ itself and the the way it was notated. Okay. And on some of the recordings, you also might even be able to hear some of the mechanical action. So many of these organs uh, you have from when you press the key down and it pulls a little piece of wood and there's these mechanical connections that uh, open up a little valve that lets air go to the pipe. So you might hear a few little clicks and such on some of the recordings as you hear that mechanical action from the, from mm-hmm. the key to actually making the air go through. Wow. Do you know who Maria Zart, who is that referring to? So I believe this is probably a sacred tune, if I had to guess. Don't quote me on that, though. (laughs) Uh, So if I had to guess, it would be the Virgin Mary. I mean, it does have Maria in the title, and it's, you know, (laughs) we talked about the organ and its connection to the church for a while, so... want to hear something interesting, Andrew, that I wonder if, if you've heard? If you sure. Know. Okay. The world's first chairlift was made in Idaho. <laughs> so I mean, what the s- actual, I mean, what the actual <laughs> fuck, you guys? You guys so, have like all these things going on that nobody knows about. I love it. I kind of need, I need to go. <laughs> the first ski resort in the U.S. was in Idaho, and it was a uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a bunch of the railroad companies because they wanted to drive tourism. And so they took a guy from Switzerland mm-hmm. around the U.S. to different mountain place locations in the country with the basic question of where should we open our first ski resort? And they picked this place in Idaho because he thought it was the closest to what they had in the Alps. Oh, so wow. whether that's actually true, like whether this is actually the closest you can get to, to the Swiss Alps in, <laughs> in the U.S., um, I don't know. But it's a it's a gorgeous place in the in the summer and and in the winter. Yeah, there's like the I think you have the you can have claim to the longest gondola ride. You have the most white water in the 48 states. The more I read about it, I like, kind of veered off into not learning about wine and I was like (laughs) Emily's like what are you going to talk about and I was like I don't know but you know lentils I don't know but you know white water so Jill maybe you can confirm because I know when I was first going out to a few wineries and I was 
No, I've been to wineries in some states where it's like, okay, so you call this wine, right? Uh, in, in scare quotes. So mm -hmm. I had no idea what to expect. And I was shocked because I thought it was you know, pretty good. And there was told that a lot of it was, it's similar latitude as a lot of the growing regions in France. For the US, like for how far north we are, it's fairly temperate. We're in a valley. And it's, I guess, same, like similar latitude, you know, as like Willamette Valley in Oregon, But a lot of it has to do as well, we've got really long growing days and mm -hmm. it's a high mountain desert and they can really control how much water the vines are getting. All of those things, yes. You got like <laughs> have your halfway to the sommelier certificate already. No, you're you're right on all of those fronts. I want to say that depending on the wine region that that you know there are three American viticultural areas that are demarcated in Idaho. They all fall. I want to say in the in the 40s somewhere with latitude. Um, I think Burgundy is right around 47. So it has the latitude part. You're right about being um, you know between a mountain range and kind of the the desert area with access to water, but not too much water. You have that going for you. There's the there's a diurnal range is very important to maintain acidity. You want those warm days to be able to fully ripen grapes, but then you it is really beneficial to have it get quite cool in the evening because that I think in Idaho it's like up to 30 to 40 degrees from yes. day to night, depending on, you know, depending on the month. But that helps maintain that high, higher medium acid levels um, in the grapes. Irrigation is a really contested topic right now in wine because with water shortage around the world, you know, a lot of people are like, well, if grapes aren't growing somewhere without water, then they shouldn't be there. Well, let's be honest, nine tenths of the world's grapes Mm. Are, for wine are irrigated. So that's um, kind of depends on who you talk to there. But yeah, everything you just pointed out right there is viticulturally why Idaho is able to sustain some pretty great quality grapes to make wine for sure. And has been doing so since like the 1860s, I think, the area wow. around Lewiston. So we're on the Western border where all of the wine regions are. We're very close up against the border with Washington. They have been planting grapes for wine since the 18, late 1800s. And nowadays when, you, when you're going up to that area and traveling and look, checking out vineyards and such, there are hundreds of acres still of abandoned vineyards that is almost like ghost town like, but f for, for wine and vineyards, because you can just imagine pre-prohibition, a lot of action happening there. And, mm. you know, obviously post-prohibition, it wasn't the first thing on everyone's mind. Well, should we open something? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking too much and I'm very thirsty. <laughs> I'm going to crack ours open here. Oh my gosh, that was in tandem with that was what's amazing. happening in Idaho. <laughs> that was like, that was unison opening. Love that. So I'm pouring right now 3,100 Cellars General Funk 2019, which is a sparkling Chardonnay from Idaho, from the Snake River Valley. And they call it kind of in, in quotes on their website, they say a pet nat style. And I'm going to, I might argue that a little just, but we can go talk about that in a moment. First of all, just what do you think of the smell, Andrew, before we kind of get down and dirty with more info on this wine, but more info on music too. What do you think about the smell? So I say I like the funk because it definitely smells a little more yeasty perhaps than I might expect most sparkling wines that I've had. Okay. You're spot on there. This spends some time on on the lees, it's called, on its dead yeast cells in the bottle. So um, once it acquires its effervescence, 
they'll leave it on those dead yeast cells. A lot of times in sh to be called champagne, it's well over a year to have to do that. But in a lot of sparkling wine production, it's quick to market. They don't spend time on the leaves. They'd rather have it fruity and you know, get it mm. in people's glass. The people at 3,100 cellars have let this sit on the leaves for a year. Oh, so wow. it's developed those kind of yeasty sourdough bread characteristics for sure. And if I had to guess, you can tell me how spot on I am or not, how close I am to my sommelier license. Uh, a little bit of apple maybe, like green apple behind the yeast. Ooh. I yeah, I for sure. I apple. get, a lot, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I get like apple skin and I get like apple kind of the, the seeds too. There's a little bit of like a earthy kind of weediness too. Yeah. And I, I will raise my glass right now to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Andrew. To scores and pours. To Andrew. Thank Cheers. you for being our guest. Cheers. Ooh, I like that tart. Mm -hmm. Dry. Yeah, dry and acid. Love it. Yeah, the bubbles are kind of big and nice and frothy. Mm -hmm. They're not too creamy. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? So I was going to say the, the acid is, I think, the first thing that hit me. Uh, and the the bubbles, I like that you mentioned that because I've had some, some pet nets that are not nearly as bubbly. Yeah, that's really perceptive. So normally in a pet net, that's a one single fermentation that is basically continuous. And a wine will be gaining in effervescence as it's losing sugar, right? The yeasts are doing their work. And then they're bottled when they have, I don't know, maybe nine to 12 grams of residual sugar. And so the, the yeast keep feeding, they render a dry wine and you have some natural effervescence. And usually pet nuts are ready before Christmas time. They've, they've gained in effervescence. In this situation, we likely had a wine that was bottled it with maybe maybe a little more sugar, because it seems like however fast they acquired effervescence, there was more sugar to eat and they produced more gas. So this, this may be like um, in, a, in a champagne world, this has a little bit more like champagne, kind of more aggressive bubbles than kind of fruity, frothy, fun bubbles. Mm. So that's really perceptive, I think. Yes, c come get your sommelier certificate, Andrew. <laughs> I'll, come, I'll come try to do your job of which I... <laughs> I think I'll, I'll prefer to swirl a glass is maybe seemingly a little easier than your job. Let's go back to organs. Yeah. So, Andrew, um, in this playlist, you do kind of go a little bit round the world, as it were. And one of the things that I think is very weird about the Italians is the lack of petals. Will you talk about that? First of all, explain what I'm even asking, if you would. Right. So... Typically, if you, if you see an organ, you're often seeing multiple manuals and a manual's keyboard, right, that you'd be playing with your, your hands. So you often have at least two, and big organs you can have, you know, like three, four, or, or more, as well as a pedal board, so keys that you're playing with your feet. And you're right, the Italian organs, uh, often they might have even had only one manual, and either no pedal or what they call pedal pull-down. So there's not like a separate pipes that are playing the pedals. It's just that you have a pedal board literally connected by wire to the normal keyboard so that when you press a pedal down, it would also pull one of the keys down on the keyboard um, to make the, the pipe play. And I see a lot of connection towards function, right? What are they using it for to a lot of the differences between the different regions? And at this time, so if we're going into like Baroque period, Renaissance period, Italy, that a lot of the music that they would have been playing would have been part of the Roman mass. 
And at this time, there was no congregational singing. So the only people singing would be clergy or monks. So priests or monks are the people that are gonna be singing. So you don't necessarily need a big sound. They're not accompanying the singing. They're yeah. playing in between, right? So you might have the clergy chant something and then the organ plays something that's in response to it. And it'd be back and forth between the two groups. So they did have secular music that was composed as well. But um, at least for me, that's one of the reasons why these organs are a little bit more delicate uh, yeah. in sound, uh, sweeter, right? Than yep. you might expect from a, a modern organ or what we'll hear from, from Germany. Yeah. So go ahead and why did you choose the Gabrielli and the Frescobaldi to, to share? So these, Frescobaldi, I mean, he's a big, big name. Uh, I tried to pick composers that would be recognizable outside of just the organ world. So that the Gabrielli, and I picked these almost more for the organs that they were recorded on. Oh, so cool. yeah. the Gabrielli, it's a um, famous organ that we think was built in 1532, 1533, and was restored. There's a lot of organ restoration work happening in the 90s, 1990s, uh, to try to restore these to their historic condition because like I said, they've been changed a lot over time. So uh, recorded in 19, uh, restored in 1999, and you'll hmm. hear quarter comma mean tone in the Gabrielli. So Where temperament, is that? right? Yeah. Temperament is a big thing yeah. with, with keyboard instruments that if, you are in, uh, if you're playing a violin or you're singing, you can make little adjustments to really make something in that key. On a keyboard instrument, it doesn't match. Like if you try to tune, up in fifths from like C to G to D and so on, by the time you go all the way around, you would have a B sharp instead of a C. Mm. And they're off by a little bit. It's a mathematical problem. And uh, so, but keyboards, right, it's a fixed note. <laughs> you can't really change the note from one key to another. And so what they did with quarter comma mean tone is they took this leftover piece, which they called a comma, and they split it up into fourths. And so there are some keys that work better than others. So you should hear hopefully a slightly different sound. Some of the triads should be a little bit more pure, a little sweeter in sound than if it were on an equal tempered modern instrument. We'll definitely hear more of this later on where you'll hear the half steps are different sizes from, from one to the other. Crazy. But I Great. think that's in the spay link that's coming up, so. Sweet. Well, let's hear a little bit of this Gabrielli. Gabrielli. This is what Canzoni alla Francese et Ricarcari Ariosi. Say that yes. first five times. And, and the, the, the canzones are fun. I think you'll hear the imitation. They're light, fast tempo pieces. Great. Let's do it. Definitely hear a fairly typical rhythm to canzones. That bum 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 kind of rhythmic yeah. pattern is is pretty typical. And if I'm remembering right, you guys have talked a little bit about temperament previously a uh, bit, yep. with with Bach. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So I think you'll get a better idea uh, as we as we hit. I picked one piece in particular to really show off some mean tone temperament a little bit later on. Okay. Well, why don't we listen to that right now? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Oh, so the Spalink Fantasia Chromatica. You definitely will hear some fun mean tone temperament. The half steps will be different sizes, which on, yeah. if you play it on a modern piano, it's every half step is the same, which is why we call it equal temperament. And this, well, we can talk about the organ after we hear a little bit about it. Here, Are we going to listen to Fantasia Chromatica? Yes. mean tone temperament that's like when you're kind of using those is it more of like a half step is it something am i confusing it with some sort of dissonance or so it might sound more dissonant to modern ears that the it's like if you're moving by half steps so like every single okay. note on a keyboard from like c to c sharp to d to d sharp to e and so on in in mean tone temperament they have adjusted the size of some of the intervals okay to kind of make up for this fact that they don't match once you kind of around your circle of fifths. Okay. So that means that you have probably a C sharp and not a D flat. So that one note is gonna be a little bit closer to D okay. than it is to C. Uh, okay. You probably have an F sharp and not a G. So it's a little bit bigger going from F to F sharp than it is from F sharp to G. So splitting hairs, like literally. Yes, but it okay. makes a difference that a, a chord using, say, F sharp will probably sound better than one that would be using G flat. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So if you're playing it together with other notes in that sort of chord, you're going to notice it more than if you're just to play it single and outright. Right, and you see this, that by the time we get Bach, they had well-tempered, which splits that comma up across more intervals. So you don't have as many... <laughs> kind of rough sounding ones. But even there, if you look at uh, the well-tempered clavier, Bach is pretty smart about choosing which preludes and fugues are going faster. If it's in a key that's going to be not as good sounding, he tends to be having a faster tempo so you don't hear as many of these potentially crunchy intervals happening. Oh my gosh, fascinating. I hope yeah. that my father can gets to hear this. He used to <laughs> tune pianos a long time ago, and so he's aware of... A he probably knows the, all about that, yeah. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I think one of the most mind-blowing moments for my musical education was learning that pianos are just all out of tune all the time. Like, even when they're <laughs> yes. in tune, they're out of tune. And uh, that really blew, li literally blew my mind. I was like, whoa. And my dad, he's a perfectionist, so, like, to tune a piano, it'd be, and then you'd probably go, I imagine he'd go, like, retune it. And then like retune it, and then re and then just be like, fine, I give up. It's been it's been ten hours. I'm done. Oh man, that's crazy. Oh, so now, do you mind if we go back and Gabrielli quick? I know or, or Frescobaldi. Frescobaldi, Frescobaldi, yeah, yeah. Just for to sure. Get in there a little bit and dig in. Sure. Can I say a little bit more about Svelink, unless we're going yes, to come back please. to one of his? Uh, so Svelink is interesting because he taught a lot of North German organists, so he had a lot of influence on 
on German organ music. Um, and he was from the Netherlands, just so we're clear. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. he was from the Never Netherlands, late 16th, early 17th century. And the Netherlands are interesting because this is post-Reformation. And that if you were more on the reform Calvinist side of things, they tended to not have instrumental music in their church services. And they viewed organs as being somewhat popish. <laughs> Uh, uh -huh. wow. But you have a lot of these wonderful Dutch organs because they were very much part of life at that time. The cities and mayors would you know, put a lot of money into building great big organs. So they're usually much bigger instruments than you might have, say, in Italy, for example. Almost as if there's like, you know, competition between towns as like, who's got the better organ. Uh, <laughs> so they had organ recitals and concerts fairly frequently. So it's a, a little bit of a different use for the organ, which kind of makes it a different kind of instrument. So Frescobaldi, I picked Frescobaldi, besides that he's one of the more like, well-known names from you know, Italian, late Renaissance, early Baroque music, but his music we know was studied by Pachelbel and Bach. So we know Bach had copies of Frescobaldi's music, studied it, um, so we know there's a, a connection there that Bach was very cosmopolitan, right? He, he studied a lot of music and incorporated a lot of elements from Italian music, from French music, from North German across what he did. Mm -hmm. So that's why I picked Frescobaldi. Nice. Sweet. Fiori Musicale. Let's do it. This already sounds crisper. Is that my imagination? So it would be, I mean, that might be the recording. I mean, okay. these are probably similar time periods as far as the organs themselves. So it might be the recording. They're both, you know, small Italian Renaissance organs have that okay. same light, sweet sound to them. And upper register sound too, just so much like higher pitch. I mean, mm -hmm. there are bass notes too, but nothing like obviously having a, a pedal, an array of pedals at your feet. Yeah, and you don't have the separate low octave bass being provided by, by pedals. Yeah, yeah. So walking that line, late Renaissance, early Baroque, isn't it? And you get the, the imitation, right, that you associate with both of them, but a little yeah. bit more of the complex like, polyphony, perhaps you'd expect in, in Baroque, or at least leaning in that direction. Yep. So you're, you're speaking of the polyphony, and I'm going back to church, of course, again. Forgive me. There may be things like haunting me from my past that I don't know, but let me let me just ask this. So how do players of the organ, because I'm sure you know many, and you too, Emily, when you have players of the organ that are, you know, they're fixated on this sort of more like older styles of music and not new compositions for organ, which I'm sure exist, like does one's background or one's beliefs ever influence, I don't know, the fact that they're playing the organ and they're really into this style. I, I, what, what, this question comes from me asking Emily earlier before we sat down. I was like, Emily, what if you were like agnostic and mm -hmm. then you really love the organ and then you loved music theory and just such as yourself, Andrew, and then you decide to get into this kind of music. Does it mean 
less or more or what? Because you don't have a maybe a background in the church or a love for the church. You're agnostic or atheist or whatever, but you're playing all of this, a lot of this music that a lot of it comes from a very religious place. So I don't know if I'd say it means less or more, but it might mean differently, right? Okay. That, that one can enjoy music of any style, right? Uh, for its aesthetic qualities, uh, for if you're teaching, right, for as a pedagogical tool, right, it might teach certain things because it's fun to play, right? But <laughs> yeah. there's lots yeah. of reasons why you might enjoy certain types of music. So people that do have religious belief, they might attach some types of meaning to it that someone who is agnostic or atheist might not. So I don't want to say like someone likes it better than someone else, but I think yeah. it, it might mean things differently to different people. But I think that's true of everything, right? Depending on our own cultural backgrounds. I think, and that's that's totally, you know, you just drew a really big parallel with, with wine, I think, because some people use the better or worse and, and name your question here, right? With me, mm -hmm. they'll say, well, is this wine better than that wine? Or, and then I, I turn back and say, well, it really just depends on whether it's your context, your experience, mm -hmm. your pocketbook, your mm -hmm. all the, these things. So yeah, it parallels wine for sure Yeah, in that way. And there was, of course, a lot of secular music written for organ too, and we're gonna hear some of that in, in a little while, but let's talk about wine for a minute. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to, you know, just some stats for Idaho wine, because I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast, you know, I, I would say it's a nice 50-50, the groups that came to this, or the people, our patrons, Yeah, whether they come to it from a wine background, but kind of dabble in classical music, and then, you know, vice versa, there are people that come with a classical music background, and they, you know, drink wine on the weekends or something and want to learn more about it. And Idaho, I literally, the people that knew I was going to record this episode were like, what the hell are you going to talk about? Or <laughs> they, they grow grapes there? Or, you know, so yeah. I wanted to give, a, for those people that don't really know a lot about Idaho wine, I wanted to give a couple couple stats and background information. I already mentioned history stretching back to about the 1860s. Currently, there are about 1,300 acres planted in Idaho and about 65 wineries, and that equals approximately 500,000 gallons of wine, which for those of you who work in the wine business, it's about 160,000 cases nice. uh, of wine a year. And just to give you another, well, I should say that that uh, 1,300 acres that is in Snake Snake River Valley, because each AVA is a little bit different. Okay. Um, an AVA that is further north that we just talked about, the Lewis Clark Valley, that's got 306,000 acres. Right, okay. Nap Napa Valley is 43,000. Oh wow! To, to just give people a comparison, that's a swath of land. Now, granted, that includes the the small part that's in Washington. Okay. Seventy two percent of that AVA is in within Idaho? the Idaho border. Okay. Yep. Okay. But just really interesting the that there's a lot of wine happening in Idaho that really I think a lot of people outside of the borders of Idaho don't really know about. It's a very much so a local circle of people that are growing, buying, selling. Hmm. 3,100 sellers specifically, just to talk about the producer that was were so gracious to ship us some wine. They named their sellers 3,100 sellers because there are over 3,100 miles of Whitewater River in all of Idaho. Hmm. Um, I mentioned that it's the Whitewater 
capital of the lower 48 states. Wow. These guys are really into it. Marshall, the gentleman who owns along with his partner, Haley. Marshall used to be a river guide um, oh, cool. and for white water rafting. And Haley loved to white water raft. And so they met on the river. Fun. The name for this wine general, Funk, comes from, he had like this alter ego, like when everybody's, you know, introducing themselves <laughs> and hi, I'm Haley and hi, I'm Marshall and we all are going on the boat. Yeah. Someone like coined when they asked him what his name was, I think he answered back like General Funk or something like that. <laughs> P-H-U-N-K. And it just kind of it kind of stuck, right? So they named this wine General Funk. This is 100% Chardonnay, like I mentioned before. The soils in this area are not uncommon to a lot of places in Idaho that are able to grow grapes. So we have silty, sand, loam soils. So there's it's, it's a rather moist subsoil or that's able to retain water. Any water that it gets, it can retain it, which is very important. And you only get more of like a kind of a granite feel and a little bit more chunky when we go to a really small viticultural area within Snake River Valley called Eagle Foothills. And that's Mm. nestled in between kind of the desert and the river area and then the mountains right there to the east. And they have a little bit more of like a crunchy texture in their topography, in their soils, and then translated to if they're doing it as naturally as possible into the wines as well. Snake River Valley, the wine that we're drinking today, comes from five-year-old vines grown in the Snake River Valley, which was the first American viticultural area in the state in 2007. Oh, neat. This is like just when I was starting to like with my winemaking background um, and I was working in Oregon and just one state away, if someone was like, dude, they're making wine across the border. You want to go? I'd be like, no, they're not. (laughs) And yet they'd already registered for their first AVA a couple years prior. Wow. So yeah, they've been making wine and growing grapes for well over a decade in Idaho, which is kind of cool. Well, since the 1860s. Well, I mean, yeah, but I would say to have an American viticultural area that they can Gotcha. Sell. I mean, Napa Valley doesn't, it sells because it's Napa Valley. Yep, yep. Not because it's, you know, has a history. I mean, I think a lot of times nowadays things sell in this country because of its current status. It's not like Burgundy where it sells because it has like a thousand years of viticultural history or anything like that. Yep. Now that the wine has sat in your glass, Andrew, what do you, what do you think about it? Do you like it more now that it's kind of lost a little bit of a chill? Do you want it colder? What do you think as the wine's got some air? I think I like it. I, I really liked that first sip that I got, right? Because it just hit me like the acidity of it. So mm-hmm. I think I've lost a little bit of that, but I think it's just because I've been drinking it. I really want to have this like on a hot day sitting outside. <laughs> is, right. Is yes. really what I want. Maybe with some oysters or something. <laughs> If I liked oysters, I'd say yes. But <laughs> okay, maybe with some uh, yeah, gratin is too rich and fatty for a hot day. What about with a little cheese platter? I would say like and... cheese and fruit, like yes. a little bit of like fresh fruit, yeah. whether maybe like strawberries or raspberries or even apples, something like something that that has a little bit of tartness to it, but a little sweetness too. I love that. I love that idea so much. Yep. Now, on the show, we tend to focus a lot on natural wine. And 
this is sort of a departure because we, at 3100 Sellers, she was very candid to say, listen, we love native yeast. We want to work with them at some point. But right now they're in a shared facility for making their wines, which is very common for a lot of people just around the world, right? They're yep. trying to just cobble together enough money for their projects so they share space to make it more affordable for everyone, share equipment, share tanks. And so that's what's happening here at 3100 Cellars. She said, you know, they may experiment with them someday, but they do you know, very light filtrations. In this case, there was no filtering because they're like, why are we going to filter? And then we're bottling our wine with the smallest amount of sediment. So like, that's kind of ridiculous to put that back in, right? Because mm. it is um, made in that sort of pet nat style, according to them. And she said, you know, we do temperature control because we want to keep the wine crisp. We don't want it to get wild and out of control. We want it to be just like you said, Andrew, you would like this on a really hot day. It's really refreshing. It's got those nice bubbles. And so this is, I think, a really great nod to a place in this country that people don't know wines are being made, don't mm -hmm. know grapes are being grown. They're excellent quality. They're just not kind of quote unquote natty for those of you listening to the show being like, is this a natural wine? Because pet nats, it's sort of ensued that this is inner inferred rather that pet nats are natural. And so I just wanted to throw that out there that these are not indigenous yeasts, but it is not a filtered wine. And then they're they're working on it. We'll see what they can do. You want me to refresh your glass? I would love that. I I agree with Andrew that this is a very refreshing and pleasing uh, wine. And like I said, I was shocked. Like, I had no idea what to expect. Can you go to Idaho? And I was like, oh, they've got wineries, but you know, it's, I don't want to say it's like Minnesotan wine, right? Like, or, <laughs> but, uh, no, you can um, say that. <laughs> can I? There's Is not it? really, yeah, there's not much good wine here. You can totally say that. <laughs> um, or, uh, imagine like, you know, like, it's Schitt's Creek, right? Where they've got the fruit wine and they're trying to just stomach it so they can make an ad for it. Yeah. But I was like, really shocked. Like, there is a lot of good wine happening in Idaho. Mm -hmm. That's super fun. And I can't wait to explore it further someday. I do want to mention two things before I get back to music. One is a caveat, because when I said there isn't really a lot of good wine here, Emily's eyebrows got really high. And it's, I mean, for me who drinks a lot of natural wine, it's sort of honestly here in Minnesota, I mean, I'm just going to say it. If you were to have an ingredients label on your wines, you wouldn't drink them yeah. here because they look like a box of sugar cereal. Like there's so much stuff in it that you can't pronounce that yeah. then in the end, are you paying for an agricultural local product or are you paying to just kind of say it's from Minnesota yeah. and to maybe get a little happy on a Tuesday night? Like, yeah. so. Before you get too much hate mail because of me, I should say I am a native Minnesotan, right? I am proud of my home state. <laughs> oh, Maple <laughs> Grove. Yes. No, I, you know, I'm, and I'm super proud of the efforts. I mean, there are people trying to make natural wine here. There's some great cideries. You know, there are people that grow great grapes here. They mm -hmm. just, when they go to make wine out of it, they dump some other things in there that maybe isn't to my liking. Other people can like it, and that's fantastic for yeah. it because they're going to help them. the great breweries here. There's great local scene. It's just oh, wine yeah. is, is yeah. a little bit behind in the natural wine front. And there are a lot of places like that. Yeah. So very yeah. few people are waving that banner with yep. cold hardy grapes. And I'm glad you said that because I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and, I, and I also wanted to, to, because I've had some time to just, as you were talking about the organ and I was ensconced in that conversation, Andrew, I, I was thinking also just, so this is likely, this could be a pet nat, right? We could have had this bottled by November, say, but then they did let it be Sir Lot or on the lees for 12 months. So in theory, this, I, I mentioned before, it's probably not a pet nat because they did this. It could be a pet nat, but through that process of it 
being on the Lees for 12 months, it sort of will maybe negate those fruity flavors. Like you said, you tasted in Pet Nats in the past, Andrew, where you're like, it's kind of fruity and funky and maybe a little less dry, those styles. This is probably why this is a little bit more yeasty and a little seemingly drier and mm. a little yeah. kind of more bready. So, yeah. But it's lovely. Me. I'm glad you like it. So one of the reasons that Andrew and I started talking about Oregon in the first place, because there are, to be fair, a lot of different things that Andrew and I could talk about together uh, just based off of our history. But I, I think he reached out when we were talking about the French composer Olivier Messiaen. Mm. And he was like, please tell me you're going to talk about his organ music. And I'm like, well, buckle up. because <laughs> <No. laughs> That was okay. a little bit of a uh, kind of in process because it's like oh messian and so i just like pulled up facebook and it's like i'm looking forward to hearing some organ music as i'm like, <laughs> listening to the episode and so yeah, she and gets like, these like comments as the episode is playing <laughs> and i was like no but you know if you ever wanted to talk about that we'd love to do an episode on that and then andrew was like well we could talk about different things with organ specifically the terroir of organ, which is, you know, I don't even think I've ever used that term in the context of organ and music in my entire life. But knowing that term from wine, the fact that regions in wine can have special attributes that make them unique, uh, organs obviously can do that too, which he's alluded to in, in the fact that, you know, the Italian organs sound sweeter and they don't have pedals, so you're missing that big, boomy bass underneath everything. And, um, you know, so that's kind of how we came to this little discussion of organs around the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the composers also that I've talked about just once, I think, in the past on Scores and Pours is Buxtehude. And so I would love to hear you, Andrew, talk about why you have included Buxtehude on this list. So, yeah, and to give us North German, which <laughs> you absolutely will hear a bigger bass sound from pedals. The German organs also had mixtures, which are really high stops to add brilliance to the sound, which will mm, contrast with the French in a little bit. And um, please, I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do explain what stops are. So if you have different sounds, I almost think of, of organs like early synthesizers, <laughs> where it's all mechanical, yeah. because you can have different sounds, like you have flute stops, which sound much more open, hollow sounding, chiffy, versus a principal, like a principal chorus, which is like, you'd have your normal stops at, or your normal principal at an octave, and then they have what they would call like four foot would be an octave up, which is based on the length of the pipe, right? So your eight foot stop is gonna be pipes that are at about, you know, eight foot for the length of the pipe, the longest pipe, four foot an octave higher, two foot an octave higher, because there's this one to two ratio as you go up an octave. Mm -hmm. So a principal chorus is what you'd think of as your generic pipe organ sound. So we'll hear that in the Buxtehude, as well as you'll hear, if I'm remembering the recording correctly, mixtures on top, which add a little bit of brilliance to it. So the stop is what we'd call those individual kind of instrumental sounds. Each mm -hmm. one is a separate stop. And it's called that because literally you, as you pull it out, because you have these knobs, right, that you pull, on a mechanical organ, that is what would stop the air from going through to the pipes. So you're literally pulling this thing out that lets air go to a chest with where the pipes are sitting. And then when you press a key, it opens a valve. 
So you need to do those two things in order to let air go through a pipe. So that's Perfect. what, when we say you pull out all the stops, right, that is an organ term <laughs> where it's really, it's, yep. let's make this as big, let's go all the way kind of sounds to it. Oh my gosh, I was just going to say that. <laughs> and then yep. I was like, nah, <laughs> okay, exactly I'm so glad you said that. Okay. <laughs> so I picked books to Huda on, Unfortunately, this is not an original instrument. The, the two organs at the uh, Marienkirche in Lübeck, which is where this was recorded, were destroyed in World War II. Okay. But they've rebuilt one in the style of like a North German Baroque instrument. So at least it's in the same place where Buxtehude worked. He worked at the Marienkirche in Lübeck. We know that Bach traveled by foot, right, a couple hundred miles, yeah. to listen to books to who to play and he like gotten a job and he's like i'll be gone a couple weeks and then was gone for several months <laughs> just to go to lubeck and hear books to huda <laughs> and fun story just with with books to huda and his position so it was somewhat of a tradition at the time if you were getting a gig at a church that you also marry the daughter of your predecessor. Yes. So Buxoda actually married his predecessor's daughter. And then when he was getting ready to retire, he had a couple like big names at the time, including, oh, I'm going to forget if it was Handel or Pachelbel. I think it was Handel. He had Handel come in and offered him the job, but with the contingency that he would have to marry his daughter. And, and Handel <laughs> turned him down. There were a couple other people also kind of interviewed for the, for the job. So... But yeah, so that's what, um, why I picked Books of Huda. We get a little bit of a North German sound and uh, someone that you know, Bach cared enough about to walk a couple hundred miles to listen to. Should we listen to the prelude, the fugue, or the chaconne if you had to pick one? Oh, let's go with the fugue. Why not? Perfect. Who doesn't like a good fugue? this has totally a different sound yeah like a little bit sharp not sharper like sharp and flat but yeah yeah sharper, right. more it's like, a definitely more direct yes kind of, thank you um, yep and there you get yeah. the pedals i think some of the reasons why you get things different in germany is again post-reformation you've got right. a lot of germany being lutheran which yep congregational singing was part of what they did. Whether, I think it was originally unaccompanied, but the organ started to become part of accompanying the congregation singing, would often you know, introduce the hymn tunes and stuff beforehand. So you get a lot of uh, organ compositions based on hymn tunes, but that means you also need a bigger sounding instrument, right? So some mm -hmm. of this is, follows function, right? It was kind of where I was thinking of like, you've got different terroirs. They're doing different things in different places for different purposes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and stay with Bach then to keep on this German sure. uh, uh, train. And one of the things that we've talked about on Scores and Pours in the past is the trio sonata. We talked about it, oh, I can't quite remember when, but it's been a couple months back uh, compared to this episode. And in those instances, we were talking about literally three players, like violin, flute, and keyboard or something, some kind, maybe violin, cello, keyboard or something. 
Uh, but Bach was just like, why would you even need to bother with the other instruments when you can play all of these things with one? And hence the Bach trio sonatas. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on that, Andrew? Yeah, these are some of the, uh, I think, hardest pieces to play in the organ repertoire because you've got three independent parts, like doing three different things. Like your right hand is doing one thing on one manual, your left hand is doing something completely different on another manual, and then your feet are doing yet something <laughs> different. So it's kind of you split your brain up in doing these uh, different pieces. And we think that Bach wrote these as teaching pieces for his son, Wilhelm Friedman. At least I think it was Wilhelm Friedman. He had a bunch of kids. Would have been, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so they're, they're tricky pieces to play, but Emily is exactly right that you've got these three independent parts. And why do you need three separate instruments if you can have three different pieces of the organ playing different sounds, right? So you still maintain independence of part as you hear it, um, mm -hmm. as it plays. And also, this is a really special performance, too, because it's uh, one of the professors from where yes. you and I both went to school. So this is George Ritchie who's performing, and he I studied with him at the University of Nebraska. Um, I'm probably a much better practicer now than I was when I was a student as an undergraduate. Like <laughs> you learn as you go. That um, you know, I always think back like, well, if I knew how to practice then, I could have done so much more. <laughs> so, but you know, he was a great teacher. Enjoyed working with him, and he's got a complete Bach cycle on CD. Nice. He recorded a bunch of these on organs in the United States, but organs that were modeled after historic instruments in Germany. So the Trio Sonata uh, is at um, on an organ in, in California, but modeled after Hildebrandt and Silbermann organs, which were common organs in the Thuringia and Saxony area where Bach lived. Well, here's the first movement of the Trio Sonata number one in E flat major. <laughs> imitation so they're not completely different but they are happening at different times yeah yep and if we can just do a little bit of the second movement. Is that okay, Andrew? Absolutely. I'd love to see you guys on a road trip together. <laughs> <laughs> I can just blow an into Boise with like broke, a, just all broke. organ. <laughs> broke or just cranked. <laughs> <laughs> So beautiful.
I kind of just don't even know what to do with myself right now because I'm kind of, <laughs> this is like, this is, they've all been really beautiful, but I just, this is awesome. Yeah. They're all so different. Yeah. I shouldn't be so dramatic. <laughs> but I, it, it, I was just like, wow, it's true. Just three different. I mean, I'm a, I, I, I'm not a drummer, but I like to play the drum set. Mm-hmm. And I realized that even though I don't consider myself skilled, it is a skill to be able to do three different things at once. Yes. With you know, or or perhaps four if you're you using both feet. And so I just listen to this and then think. Now I'm not just hitting four things or lifting. Mm-hmm. Now I have to like actually make notes <laughs> with all four things. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I, I would it. not want to be in front of a drum set. I mean, because there you've got, you know, you're doing things with both hands plus your feet. I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> so, so percussionists have plenty of skill as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have too much more to say about wine other than the fact that the Snake River Valley of the three, um, we mentioned Snake River Valley, Eagle Foothills, and Lewis Clark Valley. Snake River Valley really produces, you know, the most amount of wine of the three AVAs and the highest density of wineries. So that's obviously a little mm. bit in tandem. And historically, this area was an ancient an ancient lake. They call it Lake Idaho. They meaning you, Andrew, I guess, because you live there. <laughs> um, and, which was a really distinguishing part when you're, you know, when you're really deciding on a viticultural area. Granted, there's some politics involved. I think the Eagle Foothills, there's like one or two wineries and it was petitioned by one winery, right? And that was so... Likely because it's different, but likely because it'll help sell the wines. That here, you know, that that lake was around 3.5 million years ago, and that obviously geologically really formed that area into something special. And so that's something to note when we're thinking about AVAs and and viticultural areas, both named and otherwise. That this area really does have a special a special little quadrant um, in the world for for growing grapes, and I'm excited to see what they do in the future. No kidding. Hopefully we'll have hopefully we'll have something natty coming out of there real soon. What were you gonna say, Andrew? Sorry. I, I was gonna say even in the Snake River Valley, I think there's you know different microclimates from area to area. I know that there's a lot of the the soils volcanic that there is. Um, so I think the Eagle Foothills is a little bit of a different space. I mean, it's not in, along the river, so I think it's definitely probably a different kind of microclimate compared to the Snake River, even though it's really close, right? <laughs> that they're Yeah. Um, no, they they did say that it is specifically like they have to irrigate less because they have more access to water, both from the aquifer and the mountain, mm. which is interesting because it's within somewhat desertic climate with the Snake River Valley. There's like hmm. less than 10 inches of rain a year there. Wow. And then you go to the small little Eagle Foothills AVA and there's like sometimes up to a foot to two feet of rain a year, which wow. is like quite yeah. a bit more. It doesn't sound like much to us, but to those struggling vines, that's yes. a lot. Yeah. It's up closer to the mountains and I think a little little higher altitude. I'm remembering the, the last drive I did out there, which was over a year ago. I haven't done nearly as many winery visits with the, with the pandemic, but... Yeah, so France again. Uh, we should talk about France and Francois Couperin, who's one of my personal favorites too, because I love his harpsichord music as well. Um, and he wrote a series of masses called organ masses. And 
I'm so glad you included this on here because I think this is such beautiful music. So talk to us about these organ masses. You only included, what, two of them, but uh, talk, talk about the Couperin organ masses and why you chose them. I picked them, like, there's a, there are other composers, but Couperin, I knew you liked Couperin, and he's, again, one of those more recognizable names. But also, you get different movements of the masses, and they're often titled after what you're going to hear. So like if you have one that's like tears and taya, it's this particular sound with a, a tears, which is like giving you a third. Is it two octaves and a third? I need to see the stop number to, to interpret that correctly. I'm pretty sure it's two <laughs> octaves and a third, but it's a particular kind of stop sound and in the tenor, right? Or it's gonna be basse de trumpet, which is gonna be the trumpet in the lower part. So the descriptions that you see in the playlist really tell you something about the different kinds of sounds you can get from the instrument and kind of where you can expect them. So I think it was a helpful descriptor for making your way through them. The French, again, like this is gonna be a, a Roman Catholic country. So not the same kind of congregational singing, a big emphasis on chant. And you should try like Googling sometime Clico organ, C-L-I-Q-U-O-T. And see if you can okay. find a picture with the pedal board because the pedals are really, really short. So you could not play like virtuosic music, <laughs> pedal like music on yeah. these organs okay. uh, that they were really designed for playing along with chant melodies in a tenor range. So not bass, right? You don't get the big bass sound that you get in German organs, but it's meant for soloing out chant melodies in long note values, which if you think back to like Renaissance French music, right, that is exactly kind of what you have. You've got like one part doing the chant melody in long notes, and then all of this lovely embellishment going on on top of it. So you hear a lot more embellishment that's really typical for Couperin um, and, and French Baroque organ music in general. Definitely. Well, here's the, let's just listen to the very opening of the uh, Mesa Propre, if that's all right with you. Yeah, for the convents. Yeah, so there's two, one for the convents, one for the, the parishes. Beautiful. All right. Well, here's the opening of the convent's mass. Yeah, very trumpety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> the, the French are known for their reads, whether it's going to be French Baroque or, as we hear a little bit later, French Romantic and more likely to use reeds for that extra color and brilliance in more ensemble combinations as opposed to the Germans, which were more likely to use the mixture. And this being a mass, it alternates with, obviously, with vocal sections as well. Yes, which I think this recording does. I think that the entire masses are, are on Spotify, or if you want to, you know, purchase them, absolutely, you can listen to the full mass. I picked distinctive movements. What about this next movement you put on here? So this one is a slower one you're going to hear. I mean, I, I just love the ornamentation that you hear in some of these French Baroque pieces. By ornamentation, you're talking about all the flourishes and trills yes. and mordants and all the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> very Frenchy. I think that's very much the emphasis of these pieces. Yeah. yeah. 
one is uh, slower. It's meant to be played at the elevation. So there are moments we'd have like organ solo as opposed to back and forth. The elevation, like so when they're, um, the priest is in the process of, you know, turning the bread and, and wine and okay. right, uh, Catholic belief into body and blood, that's kind of when the elevation's happening. So it's definitely going to be a little bit more of a, somber's not the right word. Um, Maybe introspective. Serious. serious yeah. Yes. It's yeah. a little bit more of a serious, serious sound, but it gives you a really distinctive, that's like tears entirely, you'll hear it in the tenor part and it's gorgeous. Just to show off the reeds, uh, I mean, there is a lovely, like the, the dialogue sort of, of Wahiman that gives you this very French <laughs> reed <laughs> that gives you, like, supposed to like, you know, a human voice. But the, uh, I think the last one from the Mass for the Parishes, oh, no, 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 the first one from the Mass for the Parishes, which was a fugue sur le jus d'anche, which is the, um, a reed chorus. <laughs> it gives you a really kind of sound what okay. these French reeds sound like on, on these organs. And this is worth explaining, like, this is a very brassy sound. Yes. But yeah. they're called reeds uh, because the sound is generated by a little, usually a brass reed that is vibrating. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is just, the rest of the pipe is a resonator. I would just like to thank both of you for coming up with this idea. Um, <laughs> thank you for, you know, reaching out to Andrew. And Andrew, thank you for not only being able to speak with us today and showcase and highlight some amazing points about some an incredible instrument that I think goes overlooked when we talk about classical music, honestly. Yeah. And then... Thanks for providing wine. Thanks for getting <laughs> us what we needed. I mean, this show wouldn't wouldn't be the same without the wine uh, component. And to have Idaho wines is really new and really fun and unique. So I really appreciate it. I guess that's an open invitation. Thank you very much to Andrew and to Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. Thanks, to Idaho. Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link there for our merch, which includes hoodies and tees. We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours. Send us a DM if you have show ideas, questions, comments. We'd love to hear from you there. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June little kitty. Yeah.